Well, what now? Well, you know how you're planning to do the jousting scene from Camelot? Of course, that's the show's big finale. Uh, well, uh, the people that publish the, the music from Camelot just called. Mm -hmm. they, they won't let you do it. What? Uh, I was willing to give them credit. I would have given them a big build-up. I would have given anything to do the jousting scene. They want money. I cancel the jousting scene. Hi, ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, third time's a charm. Third time it is. They aren't aware of the... Uh... The drama. This episode has taken the longest of any of the episodes to make. So this is our third try at it. I had a tornado in my house, in my neighborhood. All my family's safe and sound. Everything's great. We had a tornado, so uh, didn't have internet for a while. Last week, we were talking and my mic just died. It's like the gods don't want us to record this episode, which is funny because this episode's got a lot of Jesus. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. We're going to be a little loopy tonight because uh, we're a little out of practice. Got to uh, shake the rust. Also, we are recording this on Jim Henson's 85th birthday. So happy birthday to Jim Henson. We are also recording this on our first birthday. One year ago today. As of this recording, not when you're listening to this. Unfortunately, our anniversary happened during our hiatus, but uh, when we, one year ago today, as we're recording this, was when our first episode came out. Happy birthday, Jim. So before we get started, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media, at Lunatic Daring, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and then lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We are currently going through season three of The Muppet Show, two episodes at a time. Uh, we just kind of got started. And uh, we got we got some we got an interesting mix tonight. A couple a couple of uh, interesting women women. I'm I'm interested in hearing about uh, a little bit more about Jean Stapleton because I only know one thing about her. She's yeah she's she's interesting. I know I know the one thing you're referring to um, because that was kind. I I wouldn't call it her crowning achievement. I don't think I'm qualified to make that statement, but I think it is the thing that she's best known for. All right, let's get started. you enjoy Pearly Mae Bailey? How could I not? It shouldn't surprise me to see her on The Muppet Show, but she is a, a pretty big departure from a lot of the guests that we've seen up to this point. She just slipped right in. It was great. Pearl Mae Bailey, born March 29th, 1918 in Newport News, Virginia to Reverend, not a surprise there, Reverend Joseph James Bailey and his wife, Ella Mae. That's my hometown. Was Is it really? It is. I, I should have given this one to you. I didn't know. I'm sorry. I didn't either. Uh, she graduated Booker T. Washington High School in Norfolk, which was the first city in the area to offer higher education to black students. When she was 15, her brother Bill, who was a tap dancer, suggested she sing in an amateur contest at the Pearl Theater in Philadelphia. She won the contest and was offered 35 a week to perform there for two weeks, which feels very, very Emmett Otter to me. Uh, but the theater closed during her run and uh, she was never paid. Doc Bullfrog would have at least held up his end. Soon after that, though, she won a similar contest at the, you might have heard of it, the Apollo Theater in Harlem, that launched her career in entertainment. She began singing and dancing in Philly's black nightclubs in the 30s, 
During World War II, she toured the country with the USO, although it looks like she remained stateside for most of it. After the war, she settled in New York and went back to the nightclubs. In 46, she made her Broadway debut in a show called St. Louis Woman, based on the novel God Sends Sunday by African-American writer Arna Bontemps. She won an award for that for Best Newcomer. She toured and recorded albums during this time, made her first TV appearance on a show called Wonderful Town, whatever that is. In 1952, she released a recording of Take Two to Tango, a song written by Al Hoffman and Dick Manning. Take two to tango, two to tango, two to really get the feeling of romance. Let's do the tango, do the tango, do It lasted seven weeks on the charts and peaked at number seven, and it was her biggest hit as a recording artist. In 1967, Pearl and jazz man Cab Calloway starred in an all-black cast version of Hello, Dolly, which started off as a touring show but was so well-received it ended up on Broadway, and it won her a Tony Award. They even recorded a cast album with this new black cast only three years after the original all-white version had been released. I have always been a woman who arranges things For the pleasure and the profit it derives I have always been a woman who arranges things Like furniture and daffodils and lies She was a big Mets fan. Uh, I hope my friends and family in Atlanta can forgive her for that. She even sang the national anthem before Game 5 of the 1969 World Series at Shea Stadium. She had her own show, The Pearl Bailey Show, of the variety type, of course. Although it was only on the air for five months, she unsurprisingly got some really great guest stars, including Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong, in what was one of his last public appearances. In 1975, she went back to Broadway to do Hello, Dolly! again and slayed. Of course, she stopped by England in 78 to play Camelot with some puppets. She voiced Big Mama, the owl, in Disney's Fox and the Hound in 1981. Now, if you're so foxy and old Chief's so dumb, then why does that hound get the fox on the run? Because he's got the hunter and the hunter's got the gun. Kablam! Elimination. Lack of education. If you pound around with that type of hound, you'll wind up hanging on the wall. Keep your nose to the wind and you'll keep your skin Cause you won't be home when the hunter comes a call And First Lady Betty Ford invited her to the White House to sing for Egyptian President Anwar Sadat as part of a Middle East peace conference. And it solved all of our problems with that part of the world, and we haven't had any conflict about it since. Most impressively, Pearl earned a degree in theology from Georgetown in 1985 at the age of 67. Later, she was a spokesperson for Duncan Hines and did commercials for brands such as Jell-O and Westinghouse. Duncan Hines came out with a brand new cooker that's making bacon history with luscious morsels of chocolate. Look at this cookie, honey. Mm-mm. Compare the other soft cookies to the new Duncan Hines. Believe Pearl, honey. These new Duncan Hines chocolate chip cookies taste better than all the rest. Pure ecstasy. She authored several books with titles like The Raw Pearl... Pearl's Kitchen, and one called Hurry Up America and Spit. Don't know what that's about. In 1975, she was appointed Special Ambassador to the UN by President Ford. He must have been really impressed in how she ended the war in the Middle East. Uh, She sang at the 50th Presidential Inaugural Gala, celebrating the second turn of rapist slash denier of deadly disease, 
that was killing thousands of Americans at the time, Ronald Reagan. And in 1988, Reagan gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I'm not sure how many times she got married. It looks like three or four. She had two children. Her last husband, jazz drummer Louis Belson, was white, and this caused fallout amongst her spouses, her new spouse's family. Uh, but they were married for 38 years. Only upon her death did they part. Bailey was a lifelong Republican, a supporter of Nixon, and appeared in a campaign ad for Gerald Ford's 1976 failed bid for re-election. Pearl Bailey died at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia on August 17, 1990. The cause of her death was a significant narrowing of the coronary artery. She is buried in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is close to me. Not quite, not quite my hometown, but it's close to me at the moment. She was 72. She released over 30 albums, including cast recordings, wrote six books, and absolutely ruled Broadway when she decided to grace it with her presence, won a Tony, a Daytime Emmy Award, a Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. What have you done? Pearl was posthumously given a star on the Walk of Fame in 1994. It sits in front of 7080 Hollywood Boulevard, which currently houses a yoga studio and a coffee bar. And she's a very good guest star on The Muppet Show. We've, we've talked about them crafting the episodes around the guest stars, and this was... I would call it a more seamless one because it's not necessarily a high concept episode. No. Every, it, this is Pearl's episode. This is not an episode that happens to have Pearl in it. You're from, you're from Newport News. I didn't know that was your hometown. I am from Newport News. My parents are from the Bay, but my dad was stationed out there when I was born. Uh, the Muppet Show episode number 305 with guest star Pearl Bailey produced March 15th through 16th, 1978 premiered in the UK, April of 78. And then in New York in November. Directed by Peter Harris, written by The Usual Suspects. We have a very strange cold open. Scooter comes in and asks for Pearl, and she says she'll be out just as soon as someone calls off the oysters that are attacking her. And they cut to her, and she's kind of like in her robe, sitting at her table, and there's just a bunch of oysters yelling at her. I mean... Was there a pun I was missing? There was a pun there, because, you know, they wanted her back. But the, the alternative would have just had a bunch of pigs in there, possibly standing behind her. There's uh so you know we have our our opening theme uh or we have our little joke this new thing that seems to happen now where we get this little interstitial joke in the middle of it and this one scooter runs in and is like tells everybody to get on stage and then goes oh everybody is on stage <laughs> it's, it's it's weird Gonzo um he decides not to play the trumpet this time <laughs> like he decides he's not going to play the trumpet this time and of course it it plays on itself perfectly <laughs> it plays itself perfectly like a some kind of sentient sword from Dungeons and Dragons. He just had to get out of his own way. Yeah, maybe he, maybe he like astral projected himself into. Uh, that one is for a very special guest star. She is one of the most wonderful stars of the whole entertainment world, and she told me just before the show that her papa was a preacher, which is a wonderful reason for doing the following number, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Pearl Bailey. And this is where she takes us to church. Pearl comes out, and I guess you would call it a a church set, right? Yeah, that's she's in, she's in front of a choir. Um, we've got Wayne in another successful sketch because he is not a vocal part of it. And uh, so they sing a song called "My Soul Is a Witness." It is a traditional spiritual written by Billy Preston and Joseph Arthur Green. My life is a testimony. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh yes. Yes, it is. My life is a testimony. Yes, it is. This was probably my first experience with what one would call a kind of a, I don't know, a Baptist choir, a black choir. The framing. Catholics don't do this. 
when I found out that there was church that did this, it gave me a little bit of hope about church. <laughs> Chad, I'm going to let you in on a secret as someone who's visited some of those churches. The music yeah. is amazing. The one thing that I probably would regret about not being raised more religiously is that I would have an amazing singing voice. That being said, it's long. It's real long. <laughs> You're not necessarily going to know the words to it. And about an hour before the service finishes, because service is like four or five hours, they start cooking in back. So you get to smell the food, which is amazing. It was just like really, really good staples. You had really good greens. And you get to salivate over that because they know that you're you're like you're just gonna be losing attention at that point in the sermon. <laughs> but the music is lovely. Yes it is. Yes it is. Oh yes. Yes it is. Yes it is. Yes, it is. Oh, yes. In the choir are Zoot, which I found very funny. But again, you just roll Zoot. You just push Zoot to wherever you need him to be and he'll sing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janice, Nigel, like you said, Wayne, and a bunch of whatnots with the choir. Uh, it got me dancing, man. I'm not a religious person, but it got me dancing. Uh, I thought it was really, really, uh, I mean, obviously, like, she's in her wheelhouse here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she is the daughter of a preacher, definitely in her wheelhouse. But I, I felt it. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a good number. There's, there's something very joyous in it. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be religious to enjoy that. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty infectious all on its own. Yeah, I was I was singing, I was clapping, like it, you know, it it ain't for me, but I still, uh, yeah, it, you're right. There is a, a a joy to it that is just contagious, and she just does it with such a beautiful smile on her face the whole time. Mm-hmm. I thought she killed it. Very weird runner in this episode. We cut to Statler and Waldorf, and Waldorf asked Statler what he thought of the opening number. I don't know. I'll ask the avocado. Well, what'd you think? What the hell was this, man? <laughs> this I've, is so weird. I've got an avocado story, but we probably would have to cut it. <laughs> so let's <laughs> Like, this was like... Now, I know Richard Hunt and Jerry Nelson were known to pass around a uh, jazz cigarette now and then. But this avocado... So an avocado with sunglasses pops up. Ooh, loved it, loved it, loved it. <laughs> That's amazing. No, it's not. He's been a Pearl Bailey fan for years. Statler and Waldorf are going to consult this oracle again. There's something very weird about that in another level, because don't avocados turn very quickly? They do. Why are the two oldest people on screen talking to something with a very short lifespan? Does it lend it gravitas to age faster? Is that... Maybe they feel better watching it die? <laughs> I, I, the avocado of Delphi really confused me. But, uh... <laughs> But yeah, no, they they so they are they're gonna turn to this avocado a couple times. But uh, yeah, just a just a random avocado. I didn't put that in the new characters. Forgive me. I don't think it sticks around for very long. So backstage, so here's what's going on. Kermit is planning. He's got he's got Pearl Bailey. She's a Broadway star, so he's got a big number he wants to do for his finale, and he wants to do the jousting scene from Camelot. Camelot is a 1960 Broadway musical by Lerner and Lowe, based on the Once and Future King by T. H. White. Of course, the story of Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, Zero Mostel sang a song from it in his episode. Um, actually, an unfinished script was produced for Muppets in Camelot, but it never went into development, which is a shame. That would have been awesome. Who would have been Lancelot? I don't know. Animal? Would it be Animal or would it be Fozzie? My, I don't, I don't think Fozzie could be Lancelot. Who could be the romantic lead? Well, Kermit's the Kermit's clearly going to be Arthur, but what I'm thinking about is Lancelot was supposed to be. The one with the best martial prowess. Like, he was supposed to be the biggest badass at the round table, effectively, if I remember correctly. 
Also, sorry if you're picking up a dog in the background. It's my, my neighbors. Yeah, but he's also the lover boy. So it's animal. I don't it's know. just animal. It could be, it could be animal. But they're going to do this. But Janice and Floyd think this is very square. Kermit, like, I really don't believe this weird trip you're putting us on. Oh, uh, what's that, Janice? Uh, the band and I just flashed in the closing number. The band just flashed? <laughs> I mean, you know, Kermit, sometimes I just don't know what space you're coming from. Well, well it's just sort of a regular backstage space. <laughs> really, Kermit, you don't expect us to do the jousting number from Camelot. And the main re- But then we find out the main reason why <laughs> is that... Floyd, you hear a clanking sound and Floyd Floyd comes tramping into the scene and he is dressed up in a suit of armor and he is not pleasant about it. He's not happy about it because he t- it's a good line, too, where he says, uh, Oh, my little green friend, you have much indeed to learn about today's slang. Well, how do you mean, Floyd? Well, when I said I wanted to get into something heavy for the final number, Sir Knight of the Iron wasn't it. This is going to be our kind of our, our backstage story is, which I like. Our backstage story is like no one there. There's a battle backstage about whether or not to do the finale. Tinker, tinker, fiddle. Ooh. <clears throat> Dr. Bunsen Honeydew here at Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today. We get a very classic Muppet Labs, actually. That's so good. First of all, I'm very disconcerted by the fact that Bunsen calls Peter naughty. We we know that there's uh I don't know how much of it's Stockholm syndrome, but there's there's a certain dynamic at play. Oh, that's very naughty, Beaker. Now you eat these clips this minute. Bunsen has a, has probably one of his most useless inventions of all time, which is the edible paperclip. He's trying to be green, or there's a lot less that's waste. Fair. That's fair. Maybe he is the Al Gore of the Muppet Show. <laughs> oh God. Um. But Al Gore's not a psychopath. Man bear pig. Uh, man bear pig. <laughs> no, the real Al Gore, not the South Park Al Gore. <laughs> the real Al Gore, the one that's actually tried to save the planet. Uh, he, he's created edible paper clips, and Beaker ain't having it. He's like, I'm not going to try that. And he he's like, come on, Beaker. You know why you're here. You know? <laughs> Beaker takes a bite of them, and they're good. And then he takes another bite, and they're good. And then he starts scarfing down these paper clips. Which is concerning in itself. It is. I'm assuming they melt in your mouth, not in your hand. Well, that's my guess. I don't know if they had a they had a full handle on lead poisoning at this point. And then, uh, or maybe they did, because uh, Bunsen says, "Well, it's okay that he's eating so many because they're completely delicious and nutritious and harmless." <laughs> and then Beaker's nose falls off. It's a good one because it's 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 ra- like cause it has nothing to do with paper clips. It has nothing to do with eating. It's just a random side effect. Mm-hmm. So you, you, there's no way you see it coming. Beaker definitely didn't. I'm still a little put off by him calling Beaker naughty. That's very naughty, Beaker. I'm sure that's not the worst thing he calls Beaker. The, the rest is just off camera. <laughs> so there's a really funny moment backstage. Floyd is still bitching. I mean, why cast me? This night business is an actor's gig. Yeah. And I am a musician, remember? Uh, yeah, well, Floyd, I wanted you to play the night because you fit the part, you see? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're the only one of us with real gallantry. Well, the yeah. only one of us with real honor. The oh. only one of us who'd fit in that iron suit. He's always helpful. And so they're going to have a big fight with the Black Knight. And F- F- Floyd's like, well, who is going to play the Black Knight in the in the jousting scene? And Kermit's like, that will be, the, that will be a mystery. And then... <laughs> So can we talk about what, maybe the best sight gag in the episode? Can we talk about what he looks like? Because there are what levels is, to this. What does God? What does the Black Knight look like? 
I mean, he looks a lot we'll like. Never the, know. We'll never know who he. The world will never know who he is. Of course not, because that schnoz is completely indistinguishable from anything else. <laughs> this is a joke they're going to use again. <laughs> I believe it. On the Star Wars episode, they're going to use this joke. <laughs> I can see that. But he looks a little bit like the Tin Man, which. Yeah. The thing is, I've never seen the Wizard of Oz. I've seen the Wiz a bunch, but I've never seen the Wizard of Oz. But seeing Gonzo like this, it felt like a cross between. The Wizard of Oz, and maybe... What was... Oh, right. So there was uh, Malcolm McDowell, the guy from Clockwork Orange. Caligula. That's the movie I was thinking of. He did a Caligula movie in the 60s, and somehow this was a cross between that and Wizard of Oz. And I... <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't expecting the word Caligula to come out of your mouth. Does anyone ever really expect Caligula? Are you, are you talking about Tinto Brass's X-rated film? Caligula? Probably. Uh, produced by Bob Guccione. Of- sure. That Caligula? All right. I saw a lot of movies at young age that I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> wait, wait, you saw... Wait, when did you... How old were you when you saw Caligula? Eight or nine, but like... There's like a letter from Malcolm McDowell where he wrote to somebody and he said, well, I just finished filming my first porn. <laughs> the thing is, like, at that age, I also saw things like Rocky Horror and The Forbidden Zone. I The age at which I saw things was not necessarily... Those the Caligula. Right. Those ain't Cali- that, that those ain't Caligula. Fair. Caligula's a different level. I mean, I, I wasn't I didn't have the attention span for a lot of it anyway, but like it is very boring. Caligula, the movie is actually very boring. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a good film. As a student of Roman history, I can tell you it's not a good film. But anyway, uh, Gonzo will star as Caligula in the next Muppet adaptation. <laughs> oh, he would totally be Caligula. Oh god, I can see it. It's a great line though where uh Gonzo, yeah, he shows up in his, his tin outfit and he... The world will forever wonder who I am! Turns his nose sideways. He's like, Kermit just looks to the camera and goes... Oh. Uh, though some may harbor suspicions. <laughs> Two chickens play the bells of St. Mary's on the chimes. So it says I'm up at Wiki. There's no other way to put it. The song's from 1917. It was made popular by in the indie Bing Crosby, Ingrid Bergman 1945 film of the same name. That's like one of those movies you find on Turner Classic Movies at like, you know, nine o'clock at night. And they're like, oh, they're doing a they're doing a, uh, an Ingrid Bergman night. There is a non-zero chance that I've seen this movie and I just have no recollection of it. And um, yeah, uh, two chickens play uh, chimes. Got anything? <laughs> Pretty much it. Here is a Muppet news flash. An explosion has just taken place at the Smithfield Hat Factory. I'm going to say the Muppet Newsman got off fairly easy this week. They can't kill him every week. Because he reports on an explosion at a hat factory. And he and I just wrote, there are worse things to get pummeled by than a bunch of hats. True. I mean, we know it's, as soon as he says explosion at a hat factory, you know what's happening next. I'm just saying there are worse things than a bunch of hats. I feel like at this point he knows what's happening next, too. But Kermit standing off stage with a gun just like save a line. <laughs> Although one of them might have been like a pith helmet. That would hurt. Oh. Like a military helmet would hurt. So we get backstage and um, Pearl's just hanging out with Floyd and uh, she compliments on him on his purple threads. And uh, he mentions that his main squeeze got it for him. So I think this is the first episodes where we're really establishing the Janice Floyd relationship. Mm. But his main squeeze got him, meaning Janice, got him this purple outfit. And um, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Do the rest of the musicians, do they know you in here? Mm, no, huh? Well, crazy. Listen, what if you and me, see, or you and I, either one, <laughs> what if we did a little number together? And then if we went over, who knows? We could take over the whole thing. 
Pearl and Floyd lay down a really great version of In the Good Old Summertime. In the good old summertime. All right. In the good old summertime. Strolling down that shady lane with my baby man. Which is an old Tin Pan Alley song from 1902. It's, it's the title of a Judy Garland flick, actually, which was a remake of the Jimmy Stewart film, The Shop Around the Corner, which is a great Ernst Lubitsch comedy, and they remade it as In the Good Old Summertime. And it was also then remade later as You've Got Mail, if anyone remembers that film. This was a, this number was smoking. It was really good. Strolling down that ceiling, yeah, with my baby, my yeah. Oh, darling, you are growing old. Oh, now hold that baby. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but I will be the tut tut see what see in the good old song. Come on, let's go together. In the good it reminded me of kind of when Cleo Lane was on. They were like speaking, uh, entertain speaking musician to each other a little bit you know yeah it does i like we talked about guests requesting interaction with certain muppets i have to it it makes sense even if she didn't but but like usually when you see people request someone from the mayhem they're requesting animal but we're like we're seeing more it's a really good rendition they really lay it down and it gets really funky and she she has a, she's a lot of fun in it mm-hmm. she's just a lot of fun what happens next is the UK spot, but the UK spot is just Fozzie and Rolf singing High Diddly D in Actors Life for Me, which they did uh, in this season premiere. You don't need to talk about much of that one. Why did they do that again? I don't know. Just for the hell of it, I guess. It's a UK spot. <laughs> this next picks in space. Did you were you okay with this one or did this give you a little bit of a heart attack? This one moment that's real creepy. I didn't get too much for once. We come in on the swine trek and Link is trying to figure out the coordinates of the swine trek and where they are. If the timeless endlessness of eternal space is about that big, then our spaceship is down here, possibly. Or... Uh, excuse me, Link, what, what's in the corner there? Uh, well, uh, that's a ducky. <laughs> he's drawn a ducky and then he's drawn the vastness of eternal space. And then apparently the swine trek, which is far away from the vastness of eternal space, which doesn't make any sense if space is eternal. But we need to go in this direction up here, or possibly over. No, 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 no! Oh, we're lost, lost in space. Why won't he admit it? Well, just give me time. I got lost once before, and I found my way out. Lost in the outer galaxies, Link? No, in a phone booth. And Link notices that his pencil that he's chewing on tastes like prunes. Prunes? Hmm. Prunes was not a choice. This is a pencil-shaped prune. Strange Pork then gets a reading. It's like, oh, we're we're in the we're in a pass through a field of deadly snacko waves, and it's turning everything into ship into food. And then it leads to me the most disturbing image of the episode, which is Piggy's head turning into a chocolate cake. And talking. I didn't like that. It's it's fair. Um, didn't like that one. 
Especially when she started talking. I don't know why this didn't register as nightmare fuel for me. It just, like, it leans into surrealism without going full horror. And, and then, of course, over the course of it, uh, Link ends up turning into cauliflower, and uh, Strange Pork ends up uh, turning into scallions. And the crew starts eating the uh, ship. That's where we kind of leave off. And uh, as, as Jerry Nelson calls it at the end. Be sure to tune in next week for Pigs on Toes. Scooter comes in and tells Kermit that the publishers of Camelot want money to use uh, their music. and makes Kermit cancel it immediately. I don't think Kermit's cheap. I think Kermit's broke. There's a difference. Kermit's thinking in terms of margins and... I don't know how much they're actually expecting to make on these shows, so... I thought you said we had fourteen ninety-five in the cash box. Yeah, well, I spent thirteen fifty on the suits of armor. <laughs> so he's going to cancel the act. Oh, I also wanted to mention real quick, Piggy comes backstage with the cake head. That was what was most disconcerting to me, as Piggy comes backstage with her head still as a cake. Do you think that's why they give Bunsen a pass? I thought it was very funny, though. She calls for makeup. <laughs> anyway, so we get we go we go to At The Dance. <laughs> real professor of course i hold the chair of philosophy oh where's that right here but they're like in their costumes floyd's in his night costume gonzo's is his floyd's dancing with janice and gonzo's dancing with a chicken and i don't remember much about this i do remember there's a very weird joke where two snakes are dancing say uh are we poisonous i don't know why oh nothing really i i just bit my tongue uh, say, is your friend the avocado here some kind of professional critic? Nah, he's just unemployed. You should go to work. Try to make something of yourself. Ooh, like what? Guacamole. <laughs> so backstage, uh, Kermit decides to cancel the joust because uh, without the music from Camelot, why do that? It'll be dumb. And Floyd and Janice are like, hell yeah, we've been telling you that all night. And Gonzo's like, <laughs> Gonzo for some reason thinks his career is at stake. He even says that to Kermit. He's like, my career is at stake. We are going to do this. I feel like Gonzo perpetually feels like his career is at stake. I mean, he does live on a razor's edge. Oh, yeah. He is that fast food employee who perpetually lives on notice. So they they, they start scooting out everybody out on stage to do the, the final number. But Fozzie has, the to me, the Gonzo moment of maybe the year when uh, Fozzie turns to Gonzo and says, do you think this is going to work? No! Isn't it terrific? He's so excited that it's going to bomb. He turns more and more to the real Gonzo every week. Um, so Kermit comes out to explain to the audience that uh, that what they're going to see, uh, which is kind of the jousting scene to Camelot. He does do it at sword point, though. And we get, oh boy. Okay, how to explain this next number? So I don't know musicals. It's quite complex. It's a pretty, it's a pretty for them, it's an ambitious number. Pearl looks like she's having the time of her life. Yeah, so we've got what is basically, yeah, it's a jousting scene from camp from a Camelot type musical or any kind of, you know, or if you've ever been to a Ren Fair, very similar to a Ren Fair. Pearl is the queen and Rolf is the king, and um, they're going to have the, the joust between Floyd and Gonzo. The problem is, since they don't have the music to Camelot, they do a medley of music from various <laughs> Broadway musicals. And now, may I present Her Royal Majesty, Queen Guinevere, who will welcome you officially to our annual joust. Hello, fellas. Well, hello, 
to be back home where I belong. And they end up doing this medley that uses lyrics from My Fair Lady, Hello Dolly, Guys and Dolls, Annie Get Your Gun. And, and they kind of like try, they find a little bit of ways to, to make it fit the scene. And then there's a scene, then Piggy sings something from West Side Story that has nothing to do with nothing. And then they have the jousts. And, and, and I actually thought, so first of all, I thought the medley was fun, though. Mm-hmm. She sings uh, uh, Hello, Dolly. And Scooter and Fozzie sing from Guys and Dolls. And then Gonzo and Floyd do a little uh, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, which we've seen on the show before. You know, Ralph, this don't make any sense at all. Well, I know, Pearl, but we're stuck with it. Let the joust begin! So the scene makes no sense, but then we get the joust, and the joust is fairly ambitious. Could you see this in season one? Uh, maybe toward the end. I don't think they could have staged it. I don't think they had the, the facility. I don't think they had the capability of staging this back then. Yes, it's uh, a little hokey, and and yes, the the jousting concentrates on close-ups of the puppets as they're jousting, so you don't see the horses too much. But I think the camera work does a good job of selling the back and forth. But uh, it still don't make any sense at all, as as Pearl would say. They they finally crash together and they're all tangled up and Floyd's and Floyd who apparently really likes Pearl right you know they've already had a moment this week says hey how do I look and she go and she starts with you look swell you look great and she sings everything's coming up roses you look swell you look great gotta have the whole world on a plate starting here starting now honey everything's coming up roses I really enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. The performances were really good. Piggy's rendition of the little bit from West Side Story was really good. And yeah, and half of it is just like Pearl Bailey and Rolf sitting in the King's box laughing. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they paired it up with Rolf for that too, because Rolf's going to be super laid back. Anyone else probably would have been way more high strung. Oh yeah, Rolf is just, <laughs> and I apologize, it's the Queen's box. Like you said, it's Pearl's episode. It's the Queen's box, not the King's box. Thus far, I think the highlight of the season. I, I enjoyed this one a lot. It's probably going to make it onto a list. Just a blast. And, and again, just bigger than they ever would have done before. Bigger than they could have imagined before. Huge set, multi-layered set, you know, with, with uh, different levels. The joust is kind of hokey, but for 1978 on The Muppet Show, the joust is kind of impressive. <laughs> and it, it sells the bit. I think from a storytelling standpoint, the way they built to it, the way that it resolved, the Muppet chaos that came with it, it fits. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It doesn't feel out of place for the end of the episode. It's it's really strong. Okay, well, there went another Muppet Joe. This one a little more mixed up than usual. <laughs> mixed up is not the word. No, twisted is the word. <laughs> oh, listen, guys, I'll get you a pair of tin snips in a minute. As soon as I say, let us have a warm thank you to our very special guest, our Miss Pearl Bailey. <laughs> You know something, Kermit? Hmm? I can get those guys out of that suit of armor. I'm an expert at it. Oh, really? Did you used to be a costumer? No, I was a welder. I did not find that in the bio. I, I did not find any evidence of her working as a welder, but I wouldn't be surprised. Could have seen her doing that for a short period of time. Uh, good episode. Good episode.
Miss Jean Stapleton. Yeah! All right, Nick. I I know all in the family. Give it to me. What else? So, uh, our guest star for our second episode this evening is Miss Jean Stapleton. Uh, She was born January 19th, 1923, to Marie Stapleton, who was an opera singer, and Joseph Murray, who sold ads, I assume something like what you'd see in Mad Men. Uh, Her her older brother was a stage actor, and her uncle performed in vaudeville, so there was a lot of performance in the family, and she... She did not come from money, uh, but she wouldn't actually begin her career until she turned 18, at which point she started taking roles in summer stock theater. A lot of what I would have to read would be a number of different roles that she played, and that could take up a lot of time, so we're going to glance over a few of them, because, as we've stated, she was best known for one in particular. She got married in 1957 to William Putch, who she met through the summer theater series, and she stayed married to him until his death in 1983. Uh, she was featured in... On Broadway and several hit musicals, including Damn Yankees and Bells Are Ringing, and she would later appear in films for those two as well. An interesting bit, uh, and something that would have brought her closer to my personal consciousness, she was offered the role as Miss TV in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in 1971, but she turned it down because it clashed with the filming of her All in the Family pilot. Worked out okay for her. Yeah, it, it worked out pretty well for her. I, I think she might have had conflicted role or feelings about it toward the end, but from 1971 to 1979, she played Edith Bunker in All in the Family. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. She, she was on that. There was a sequel series called Archie Bunker's Place, but she only did five episodes of that and then had them write her out via a stroke off screen um, just because she was kind of tired of playing the character, which, to be fair, that's a decade. To me, this wasn't Gene Stapleton on The Muppet Show. This was Edith Bunker on The Muppet Show. I haven't seen a lot of All in the Family, so... I haven't seen a ton. I, I mean, it was on in syndication when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I know the opening credits so well, the opening song. That they sing together, mm-hmm. and I have seen it some, so I had a hard time seeing her as anything other than Edith Bunker in this. So one of the things we haven't really been tracking, and I'll have to go back and see. A number of our guests have had roles on Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. Jean would be on it twice: once 1983, once 1985 for the Jack and the Beanstalk and the Cinderella episodes, respectively. She would co-star with former guest star Peter Ustinov in Dead Man's Folly in 1986. She co-starred with Whoopi Goldberg in a sitcom called Baghdad Cafe um, from 1990 to 1991. Well, could I call a cab? Uh, Maybe I could find a room in Baghdad. This is Baghdad. All of it? (laughs) I got city limit signs at both ends of my bed. (laughs) Well, it was nice meeting you. Oh, no, no. There's nothing nice about me. You've been crying, haven't you? I've been peeling a husband. That's funny. So have I. Her final acting role was in 2001 in a movie called Like Mother, Like Son, The Strange Story of Santa and Kenny Kimes, which she played, I think, opposite of Mary Tyler Moore. I believe this is a true crime drama about a mother that convinced her son to kill people, which I would not have seen as a role for her. 
She did pass away in her home in New York City on May 31st, 2013. She was 90 years old. The marquee lights were dimmed for a minute on June 5th that same year. Uh, in, in her memory, she's buried at the Lincoln Cemetery in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. My only real exposure to her was all in the family. I think that's what she was primarily known for. She did a lot of other stuff. Yeah. I think she's sort of... This is a strange strange comparison because she was very well respected by people that she'd worked with and she was given a lot of clout for the time that she'd put in i kind of feel like she was an actor's actor in the same way that mf doom was your favorite rapper's favorite rapper <laughs> he definitely was that that's for sure and it's a weird comparison to make because that that venn diagram doesn't overlap otherwise it's so funny you say that the guy who introduced me to mf doom was an mc <laughs> See, he was an am- he was an amateur MC. He was really good, and he was the guy I worked with. But he 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 rapped on the side, and he's the one that introduced me to MF Doom <laughs> because Doom was amazing. He said hostility. Um, what is MF? You silly. I like to take men's to the end for two milli. That's the audio daily double. Rappers need to fall off just to save me the trouble. Yo, watch your own back, him in and go out alone. Black, stay in the zone. Turn H two O to cognac. Muppet Show, episode 306, featuring guest star Gene Stapleton, produced between March 21st and March 23rd, 1978. It would premiere in the UK on April 16th of the same year, but we wouldn't see it in the States until October 5th, which was a pretty significant delay. It was written by our favorite guys, directed by Peter Harris. Explain to me this Lovecraftian horror that is the cold open. So I've got this theory mm-hmm. about this episode and Gene's involvement with this episode. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, if you've got a squeaky clean image, you want to avert that. And I don't think in the 70s, Jean would have had the license. Her Christian science background wouldn't allow her the license to go full Shia LaBeouf. So, she's going to get a little bit weird. Maybe a little non-Euclidean. No one should ever go the full Shia LaBeouf. (laughs) We begin with Scooter coming in for the cold open. Jean, trying to be tolerant, is a little confused when she notices a two-headed Muppet coming in to wish her good luck. Um, but apparently, multiple appendages is a catching thing, because she notices that she has a third hand as well. And she's sort of dressed like Michael Jackson was in the Remember the Time video. I don't think that's related. <laughs> don't think it's related either. <laughs> Remember, it's the one with Magic Johnson and Iman, right? Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Eddie Murphy just sitting there, like, playing the ultimate cuckold. Oh, that's right, Eddie, and Eddie too, of course. So I've got I've got a theory that this episode might have inspired a couple of different things, and we'll get the final number. I think might have inspired a movie that you're going to look at me strange for comparing, but that's back when Michael Jackson videos were an event. They were like it was like the the world premiere of Remember the Time. I have no idea if he did or didn't do anything, but his music was legitimately like I. It's weird to say it. But Dangerous is an amazing album. Uh, Keep It in the Closet. I love that song. Yeah, which also... That song's hot. On topic. Eh? The video. The video's hot. Was that Naomi Campbell? I think so. That video? Yeah, it's him It's him frolicking around. with. It's like the... That video is the black version of the Chris Isaac Wicked Game video. So the Muppet Show... <laughs> You get to the Muppet Show theme. The, this week, Gonzo's just kind of feeling off, like he's kind of having it out with his trumpet. But he's he's about to give it the try, and Kermit, I think Kermit just thought Gonzo was going to get cold feet again, and he's like, no, no, the trumpet's getting blown. 
We have paid to have the trumpet blown. Kermit's such a dick right here. <laughs> He's like, look, it's not hard. Yeah, that's what it is. It's like, why is this always such a big deal? Look. <laughs> I get that, though, like from Kermit's perspective, where he's like, we don't have time to keep doing this. I'm going to show you that this can be done. These usually don't make me laugh out loud. This one did. And I think because the first two seasons worth haven't, I just probably laughed harder than I should have. Poor Gonzo. Yeah. <laughs> poor, poor Gonzo. <laughs> so when we get to our opening number, I thought for a second that we'd seen it before. And then I realized that it was Annie Sue and it wasn't Piggy. Yeah, you were thinking, you thought it was Quante Lagusta. Yeah, it's the same set, isn't it? It's it's not not the same set. They still have the Mexican flag flying in the background, but they're singing a song called Tico Tico, which is a Brazilian song from 1944. Uh, well, we like to get the show off to a great start, but having failed that, let's head for the border! <laughs> And on one hand, it seems like they're trying to they're trying to give Annie Sue a chance to sort of get that leg up and start doing things. And I think the audience she's designed for the audience to want her to make it through because she seems genuinely nice. Unless she turns out to be a serial killer, that could that's not out of the cards but like there's gonna be something later in this episode that we're gonna that's gonna call into question her integrity oh yeah outside of any conjecture i thought it was a pretty solid number it was a nice little one yeah, there's a little mix with the, the Mexican flag and the Brazilian song. And, you know, yeah, you know we call it fusion now. You know? um, <laughs> a Brazilian-Mexican fusion restaurant? That sounds tasty. It's a lot of, that's a lot of beef. It's tasty. <laughs> so from there, we go backstage where we can see Kermit being nice to Gonzo again. Actually, I, I should take that back. Kermit's not the one giving Gonzo a hard time. But Gonzo's looking for his Mexican jumping beans, which respond to their... He, he'd been training... Let's play the game. Let's play the game. Is this racist? Uh, the Mexican jumping beans and then the fact that animal eats them. And was it whenever when anybody says a reba animal jumps? It's a little speedy Gonzalez. It is. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering. I'm not I'm not I'm not mad at it. I'm just, you know, I don't know if I can say that it's not not racist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't get the Mexican jumping beans thing. It's been a joke my whole life, and I've never understood it. I th I thought they were an actual thing, like sort of like a pet rock or something, just an older children's toy or something. Jean goes back on stage, and she and Fozzie are getting ready to sing a song called Play a Simple Melody. Now, I, I watched the episode before I read her bio. I guess like the All in the Family thing was the only thing that I'd really heard about her. So I wasn't expecting the Broadway background, but I... Understanding now that that's where she got her start, this makes absolute sense. But the orchestra is, uh, they're taking creative directions, I guess. What seems to be the problem, Jean? Well, uh, that music, it doesn't seem to be the right music. May I see it, please? Yeah, well, it seems Thank normal you. to me. Mm. Yeah, just your ordinary, very elaborate, pretentious orchestration. <laughs> well, what's it called? Elaborate pretensions for orchestra. <laughs> Uh, couldn't we just do that nice, simple piece? Or how about a nice, simple Latin American riff? Bum, 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 bum. She's also still, though, kind of playing Edith. 
there's something about her comedic persona that she maintains throughout the whole episode. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like she's on the whole episode, like in character. I could see I, I'm not as familiar with her character, but there was a consistency to her. It, there's the way she like she's and it's fine, but she's acting. Mm-hmm. You know, she's playing Edith Bunker in this to me. This one starts awkward and gets a lot better when Fozzie comes out. Yeah. Which is like, I feel like we haven't seen a lot of Fozzie. It turns out you add Frank Oz to something and it gets better. It's true. Won't you play a simple melody like my This number was okay. Yeah, it's... She's a little goofy. I think she's supposed to be. Like, this is one of those cases where there's a there's a degree of detachment that comes in because I'm aware of the time difference. And I don't I don't think I would go so far as to say that this was a bad or that it missed its mark. I think it hit its mark. It's just there's a very nuanced audience that's going to appreciate it that I might not belong to. It just wasn't for me. Musical demon, set your honey and dream, and won't you play me some rag? Just change that classical nag to some sweet, beautiful drag. Gladys is sort of perpetual nightmare fuel. Gladys is not pleasant. She looks like so many animatronic movie monsters from like the 80s and early 90s. I keep expecting her to take a bite out of someone. She does look like you shouldn't feed her after midnight. Or like she and a bunch of other Gladyses will roll together in a ball and then just go down the street eating people. At least we don't go to the canteen. Do we see that set again? I don't... I'm assuming we see it again, but we don't see it this time. We just... They brought her out of the kitchen. Well, she she makes deliveries because business is hurting. But uh, she brings Kermit a sandwich, which... Maybe that's why business is hurting. Maybe she needs to keep track of who actually orders things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sandwich! Here's your sandwich, frog! Uh, Gladys, I didn't order a sandwich. What? Look, somebody ordered a sandwich from the canteen. Now, who was it? Well, well, why don't you just leave the sandwich? It ain't been paid for yet. Well, you can charge it to the show. What are you, nuts? Well, take it back. Sell it to somebody else. Who's gonna buy a walnut lima bean sandwich? Like, do you just eat that for the texture? What is what is the appeal of walnut lima bean? Well, you're missing out, though. It was supposed to have jelly on it. That helps. It doesn't help. It, it do- kind of does. It kind of does, because you've got two dryish solid things, and at least the, the jelly brings it together. Maybe. I just feel like it's going to be mush in the mouth. Yeah, but walnut and lima beans? Like, how are you even going to hold that in a sandwich? We're overthinking this. Um, yes. Because there's only one person in the entire theater who would actually eat that. And that person is very offended to the idea of dining on chickens as opposed to dining with chickens. Gonzo comes in and he lets Gladys know that she did, in fact, forget the jelly. And Kermit knew immediately that it was Gonzo's anyway, because he's like, oh, there's so many people that'll eat this. Gladys ain't working. She's trying her hardest, but no, she's not working. I'm so happy. Why is that? Because we're out together dancing cheek to cheek to cheek. (laughs) So, you know, it's just an act to dance. There's a couple of little jokes. Some guy makes a joke about his, uh, he's got a fish in his ear and he calls it his herring aid. You know, whatever. We get to see Kermit and Miss Mousy together again. Bunsen is dancing with a woman without a mouth. There's a terrible joke in there somewhere. (laughs) So he, he makes a joke about how she's quiet. And Kermit, dancing with Mousy, goes, I don't get it. Now, first, and she goes, you have to think about it. Now, first of all, there's not much to think about. I don't know why Kermit doesn't get it. Kermit in this scene is a dummy. But um, 
Did Bunsen do that? That is the uncomfortable question. That is a very uncomfortable question. Because that means that he's there taunting her after removing her mouth. It's so grisly, and I don't want to think it. But he's such a f***ing lunatic, Nick. Yeah, he's up there on the sociopath scale. My goodness. I didn't understand the joke about Kermit not getting the joke because the joke was so obvious. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I would now like to sing a very pretty little song accompanied by my doggy friend. I have a very big question in this next one. Oh, oh, I want to hear it. So we go to our UK spot where we see Annie Sue again. She's sitting on top of the piano singing, Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bow Wow. <laughs> you bring that little pet of yours. I tell her that I bring my cat along with me because Daddy wouldn't buy me a bow wow. Daddy wouldn't buy me a bow wow. Accompanied by Rolf. This is a British music hall song from 1892. But the thing is, there is there is that part of me that wonders if maybe maybe Annie Sue's like a, a pig mob princess or something. Because that guy came out and he's like, full on, just do what she says or else. He's the guy that sits out in the car and waits. But you're right. It could just be she's from a rich. She's from like the like the pig version of the Sopranos. Mm. Right. And that's just one of daddy's thugs. I can see that, too. Somehow blissfully unaware of how her parents make their money. But, but, but let's picture let's let's paint this. Rolf does not like being called a bow wow. He finds it insulting. He comments on it. He doesn't want to play the song and a pig with a baseball bat or a piece of lumber or something. So it's it's just Joe Pesci pig with like no sleeves on comes in and tells him sing fleabag Annie sue right there doesn't blink this is what happens if you get in the way she doesn't go like oh my god why did you treat the dog that way she's like that's how it's supposed to go she just keeps singing about daddy not buying her a goddamn bow wow i think you're right mob princess that's much more charitable than mine So from here, we go to our talk spot, our final talk spot. Ever, ever, ever. Ever, ever, ever. So Jean's there, and she's talking to Sam the Eagle, um, and Sam makes a comment about... I hope you are surviving your ordeal on this unsavory program. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you obviously are a woman whose taste is impeccable. Oh, thank you. Mm. But really, I'm enjoying it very much, having mm? a lot of fun. <laughs> I guess that means my taste is um, peckable. And the thing is, I don't think Sam speaks any language but English. I think Sam looks down on people that don't speak English well, but can also speak other languages very fluently. He's very impressed when people speak other languages. He doesn't. Good God, no. As long as they speak English well. But it seems cultured, and Sam likes things that seem cultured. He likes the idea of culture. But Jean, who can apparently speak Swedish, understands that the Swedish chef doesn't actually speak Swedish. Oh, uh, he said he got here as soon as he could. Well, well, you tell him that from now... How do you know what he said? Oh, I took a correspondence course once in mock Swedish. Uh, 
And so she can understand him. Sam insists that the chef start speaking honestly. He sounds like such a freaking Republican in this scene. Well, yes, but the chef understands why it might be upsetting, so he starts speaking in his native tongue, which is mock Japanese. (laughs) Which could be offensive, but also being a kid that was one of those weird anime geeks in the early aughts, I just see this being a kid that picks up like a couple of Japanese phrases from random anime intros and outros and knows two or three things and how to properly pronounce the... uh, the character names from Street Fighter and feels cultured. But the idea that Swedish Chef is a weeb is way more entertaining. Do you think the Swedish Chef has a body pillow? I'm not Japanese, nor am I Swedish. In my opinion, and this could probably get me killed, in my opinion, if the mock Swedish isn't offensive, then the mock Japanese isn't offensive. I think we're taking a lot of refuge in absurdity. Yes, exactly. I think it's funny. It's not making fun of Asian people. Any more than it's making fun of Swedish people. Mm. There was no, there was no content warning on this episode. Yeah, and I, and and again, there's no, it, there's no sense of malice or there's no sense of punching down. It's just absurdity. But I again, I'm not Japanese. I don't know. I'm not a pig either. But so the idea that Annie Sue is actually a mob princess and just used to using soft power to get her way. I like this narrative we're building because she's playing piggy like a fife. It's amazing. We go backstage again, and Miss Piggy is upset because she's not in the upcoming melodrama sketch, and she is a star. See, you wouldn't want to be in the melodrama. It's just a small part. How small? (laughs) It's a very small part, and I can't give a very small part like that to a big star like you. No. Well, I see your point. Turns out Annie Sue doesn't want to be in the sketch because she, quote, doesn't think she's confident enough. She's scared. She's scared. Yeah, she doesn't... Yeah, uh, she's scared. She's new to the show. Someone more experienced should take over. A big, strong starlet like Miss Piggy. <laughs> Piggy tells her to go to her room. <laughs> Piggy says, Annie Sue, go to your room. I will take care of this. Being a helpful mentor like Piggy does. <laughs> now for the last time... Will you marry me? (laughs) For the last time, never, you scoundrel! Where is my hero? So we get our next Muppet melodrama, uh, which includes Wayne and another arguably successful sketch, and Uncle Dudley, who has tied Miss Piggy to the tracks. And Wayne, theoretically intending to be gallant, comes in to untie Miss Piggy, but he can't help but appreciate the workmanship on the knot. Hey, isn't this a double overhand knot? What? Oh, yes, it is. I haven't seen one of those since I left the Junior Swamp Scouts. You were in the Junior Swamp Scouts, too? As it also turns out, Uncle Dudley was also a scout. And so they start comparing notes about the knots as Piggy waits for this train to come and hit her because the guy that rescued her has trouble focusing. Yeah, they were Junior Swamp Troops together. Which I, I feel like Kermit just slid in. He's like, yeah, I know. Everyone knows about the Swamp Troops. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah, you're right. That does feel like Kermit wrote that line. Because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense for them. But you, but yeah, it does feel like Kermit wrote that. I could see Uncle Dudley in a swamp. I can't see Wayne in a swamp. Like anybody else would have written Boy Scouts. But the frog writes. I think, I think we've established that Kermit is writing the Muppet melodramas. Oh, I'm sure. And he does it specifically because Piggy's like, I've got to get her to come up, come up it somehow. 
I think Kermit is writing these. And Piggy might be onto that, too, because she manages to remove the tracks along with herself to get out of the way of the train and go backstage still tied to the tracks with impressive upper body strength. She's strong, man. She's oh, strong. Yeah. Well, spite will motivate you. Well, I just love the fact that she's tied to the railroad tracks. That's why Annie Sue didn't want to do it. And the train's coming and they get distracted. And Piggy puts up with it for as long as she can. And then she's like, fine. And she just gets up. So she was never actually in danger. I feel like a lot of times Piggy will say she's in danger. She's not actually in danger. She's liable to be one of the bigger threats in any room that she's in. She does whack Kermit with what's left of the railroad track, though. He didn't mean that apology, though. <laughs> Kermit, of all the lousy cheap shots you ever pulled on me! Oh, I, I know, Miss Piggy. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that's it, that the that whole sketch was going to get that far out of hand. Oh, please forgive me. Forgiven. <laughs> and then she calls for wardrobe. When she came off last episode as a cake, she called for makeup. This time that she's tied to the railroad tracks, she calls for wardrobe. <laughs> Bunsen Honeydew here at Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today. So this next one's on Beaker, man. Yeah. This one's on him. I think Beaker is just getting the uh, So is the paperclips, really, if you think about it. Kind of, so there could have been something in the paperclips that would compel him to keep eating. MSG. Yeah, just something where it's just like, you can't just eat one chip. Bunsen Honeydew. Scientist. My guess is he's probably like a donor to like the local Philharmonic. <laughs> and... Also psychopath. Yeah. Gives you a plate of pills and says, here, take one. One, it's questionable. It's questionable judgment to just take one of them, but to scarf them down like they're Tic Tacs. I feel like at some point between last season and this season, Beaker just broke. Like, he's just like, it's going to happen anyway. I might as well enjoy the ride. But uh, Beaker, uh, he's too many pills and he shrinks to be teeny tiny. We're approaching our closing number. And again, we've, we've stated multiple times, we'll probably state it again, when guest stars come on, they ask if there's a particular Muppet that they would like to work with. If you were going to tell me that Gene was going to request Crazy Harry, it would not have been my first <laughs> guess. And that brings in a weird headcanon. So we've talked about the potential for Gene to have influenced the Remember the Time video. Chad, you're a student of film and film history. There was a movie in 2004 called Crash. That is not the Crash film that I'm talking about. I'm going to talk specifically about the 1996 film Crash because mm. this final number. I saw that opening night. How was that? I enjoyed it. <laughs> there was a cop at the door. That's amazing. Because it was one of the first NC-17 films. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Crash was a, I guess you'd call it neurotic thriller. Uh, Yeah, it's a David. Well, no, it's a David Cronenberg film. He's a Canadian filmmaker. Right. Um, based on a novel by J.G. Ballard, who also wrote like uh, Empire of the Sun. Mm -hmm. And it's about people who get erotic satisfaction from automobile accidents. So there are no cars in this final number. Crazy Harry is running around setting off explosions, and it just makes her happier with every explosion. It makes her, it makes her very happy. <laughs> The song that she sings is called I'm Just Wild About Harry. It's from the 1921 Broadway musical Shuffle Along, which was the first financially successful Broadway play to have African-American writers and an all-African-American cast. It might have been more famous because it was also President Truman's campaign song in his 1948 bid for re-election. I'm just wild about Harry. 
Once you start Crazy Harry, you don't really stop him. Yeah, so Jean wants to do a duet with her favorite Muppet. And here we get again a little bit of Kermit's hubris, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's like assuming she's talking about him because he's everybody's favorite Muppet. And she's like, no, I, I got it. it's Crazy Harry. And, uh, and Kermit calls that suicidal. She's into it, though. It's like a just watching a car. No, Kermit's not solution. into it. Kermit is not into it. Oh, no, no, it. Kermit's not. <laughs> Gene's enough into it enough for both of them, though. Gene, Gene, I didn't even know that Crazy Harry played a musical instrument. Oh, yes. Which one? The Explodophone. <laughs> Which is not a real thing. Yet. <laughs> Yet. 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 Uh, <laughs> but in about 10 seconds, it will be. So, yes, and then Gene comes out onto a stage that is a steampunk washroom. It struck me as something out of Planet of the Apes, but yeah. Something with all sorts of pipes and... It's almost like that, killers. uh... Doc scene that you saw in so many 70s and 80s movies. Yeah, some gears. Just a, a bunch of stuff for Crazy Harry to blow up. They gave him room to play. Yes, and she sings I'm Just Wild About Harry while Crazy Harry is uh, blowing a bunch of stuff up. And she is, like you said... Every explosion excites her to no, to no end. <laughs> she, uh, I like that, though. She's playing a whack job. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's fun. On All in the Family, Edith Bunker was, pardon my phrasing for the, for, for the times, but she was like a dingbat, right? <laughs> and so that's what she was known at, right? Edith Bunker was a dingbat. And so she's kind of playing that here, right? But she's playing a slightly more unhinged version. <laughs> I could see that. I I don't have the context for it, and it still works without it. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's still funny. There's been a maintained level of kookiness throughout the episode, which is sort of overshadowed by the Muppets in a lot of cases, but it's still consistent, and it still plays through in the end, and it works for that final number. This explodophone is very complica complex, by the way. Well, yeah. Have you ever had to build a bomb? Okay, well, those of you with nervous dispositions will be very happy to know that we have reached the end of the Muppet Show. But before we go, let us have a warm thank you for our very courageous guest star, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Jean Stapleton! What'd you think of Miss Stapleton? I liked her. Um, Pearl, I, of the two guests tonight, Pearl is going to be the stronger impression, but I liked, I liked Jean. I, I thought she was kind of, I, I liked Jean in the sense that she was kind of goofy and seemed, you know, like she was having fun. Pearl, definitely more of a powerhouse. And her numbers were far more memorable, you know, so that part of that's the material, obviously, uh, that they're given and that's not really their choice. But like, you know, the, the Camelot scene is so good and the scene with her and Floyd singing is really great. You know, Gene's numbers don't stand out to me as much as all. Yeah. And it's it's a rough point of comparison because Pearl is such a strong personality. But no, she's uh, Gene was a very funny woman. And um, I think I think you get I think you get glimpses of that here. I would agree. Next time, school's out for summer. School's out forever. Uh, next episode, we will be talking about. Oh, okay. Anybody listening knows that every once in a while, Nick likes to talk about 
nightmare fuel. Oh, God. What are we about to do? Next week, you have episode 307 with Alice Cooper. Okay. Now, it should not scare us as adults, but as a child, this was literally nightmare fuel for me. I watched this episode and had nightmares. I also have a more personal story to tell about Alice Cooper. That'll be another one of Chad's Hollywood tales. Looking forward to it. Uh, I, actually, I actually owe a debt of gratitude to Alice Cooper. And then you got, uh, and we got episode 308 with uh, country legend Loretta Lynn. Alice Cooper and Loretta Lynn, two musicians. That's about where their similarities end. <laughs> that's about where their similarities end. But, um, but that'll be next time. So um, my name is Chad. My name is Nick. And uh, thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. I like that last number. What did you like about it? It was the last number. Oh! <laughs> <laughs>